Now let's uh, turn for our second reading and our meditation too. Let's turn to the chapter and the incident that we were looking at last Lord's Day. That's uh, John and chapter 9 this time. The Gospel according to John and chapter 9. In the opening part of the chapter, we have the account of how a man who was born blind was healed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We'll begin now reading as the Pharisees or the leaders of the church at the time um, begin a formal inquiry into what had happened to the man uh, who had done it and why it was done on the Sabbath day and so on. So at verse 13, we'll begin, we'll begin our reading. They brought him who was formerly blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed And I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, What do you say about him, because he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age. Ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, We do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Why this is a marvellous thing, 
that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshipper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see. Therefore, your sin remains. And uh, we pray the blessing of God upon that reading of his own word. And let's turn together with God's help to consider the verse that we were looking at last Lord's Day. In verse 39, where Jesus says, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Uh, Last time, uh, last Lord's Day, we looked at those who do not see being given sight. And uh, tonight, and God willing, next Sabbath day, uh, we'll look at those who do not see, or those who see, sorry, being made blind. Now, of course, the text uh, begins with Christ bringing judgment into the world. And we noticed last time that that's a surprising statement because we rightly associate judgment with Christ's second coming and not his first. It is uh, true to say that he came into this world on his first coming to seek and to save that which was lost. On his second coming, he will come to judge the earth. But, of course, here he tells us that there is judgment associated with his first coming, too. And the meaning of that is that we will be judged on the second coming according to our response to his first coming. He is the touchstone by which we stand or fall. So, in effect, when Christ is brought before us, even when he's brought before us tonight in the reading and preaching of the word, there is a judgment there according to how we respond to himself. And that judgment works in two ways. Some who are blind will see. 
On the other hand, others who do see, who somehow see, will become blind. Now, these principles are, that's the principles of the blind seeing and the seeing blinded. These principles are illustrated or should say exemplified really in the chapter right up till then, in the whole of chapter nine. Last week, we saw what it meant for the blind to see. We saw it in the experience of the blind man uh, in this chapter, whom Jesus sent to the pool of Siloam with clay on his eyes to wash and receive sight. Now, the blind man got his sight, and it's important uh, to notice that that wasn't just an outward event or an outward miracle, but an inward miracle too. The the miracle itself was, the outward miracle was a picture of the miracle that happened inwardly, where, where the blind man was brought from a place where he simply viewed Jesus as a man called Jesus to the place where right at the end there he acknowledged him to be the son of God in such a way that he fell down and worshipped him. So the the process that happened to him of being smeared with clay and being sent to wash in the pool represents the washing of regeneration and the Holy Spirit of Christ. So it's conversion. Now, that's a wonderful process. It goes on in the lives of everyone who comes to Christ. Uh, like this man here, everyone that yields themselves to the cleansing power of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you come to him, put yourself in his hands, you will find that your sins too are washed away and that you have a new life from himself. Now, these things are comfortable and encouraging to look at. Uh, but there is another side to Christ's judgment, and it's in the text here, and it's a very solemn one. We're told that when he comes, those who see will also be made blind. Now, just as the blind seeing was a reference to the blind man in the chapter, so the seeing people blinded here is clearly a reference to the people who were examining him and casting doubt on him. People who were prominent religious people in their own day, the Pharisees. They were people who saw, but who were becoming blind. And indeed the way that they responded to Christ here and the way that they responded to this young Christian, this young blind man, is an indication that they are becoming blinder still. Now, clearly, uh, these are solemn words, and clearly it's a very solemn spiritual process of regression that we have here. And uh, as we come to it, we need to pray that we understand it. And we need to pray, too, that it doesn't happen to ourselves. Uh, it's a terrible thought, you know, that we could be losing the vision that we have. Whatever sight we have that we could be losing it. So pray that these things are not true of ourselves. Now, when I mention these uh, religious people here, the Pharisees, almost every time I mention them, I seem <laughs> to feel constrained that we need to remember who and what they are. The Pharisees were a people who began well. They began as a distinct movement just around about a hundred years before the time of Christ, not long. And they began well because they were a group of earnest and 
probably believing people who were concerned that the nation was slipping away from the law of God, and rightly so. But even in the space of two or three generations, these people lost their way. They drew up their own rules for living. And these rules gradually became more important than God's own commandments. And these things can happen if we are righteous over much. We can come to add rules to God's laws. And they came gradually to glory in who they were and in what they did. And by Christ's day, the majority of them, not all of them, I mean, you'll notice here that there was a division amongst them. Um, Someone like Joseph of Arimathea identified with the Pharisees and Nicodemus too. But most of them had become spiritual oppressors of the people. They made, as Christ says, strict rules or burdens that they bound upon people's backs and didn't themselves move a finger to relieve them. Uh, but they had very clever ways of evading responsibilities themselves. And um, this strict religion became a kind of substitute for true holiness of life. And uh, sometimes people can develop a strictness in religion that puts a kind of veneer upon the fact that, that they don't really keep the law of God inwardly themselves. Christ rebukes them for tithing herbs, Uh, because that had become more important to them than judgment and mercy. That's what you would call religious people as opposed to spiritual people. They they glory in keeping certain rules and regulations, very often which God did not command, usually which God did not command. And these things matter more to them than the inward spiritual aspects of discipleship. Now, that's why Christ calls them blind. And that's important when it comes to the text here. He calls them elsewhere in the gospel narratives blind. In one place, he refers to them as the blind leading the blind. Therefore, both fall into the ditch. In another place, he calls them blind guides, false shepherds. Woe to you, he says, blind guides. But you'll notice in the verses before us that The problem is with these Pharisees that they are not quite blind. They're not quite blind. I mean, you'd think they were in verse 39, where Christ speaks of um, the blind seeing and those who see may be made blind. The Pharisees say, are we blind also? And in verse 41, Jesus answers, if you were blind you would have no sin. But now you say we see, and therefore your sin remains. They're not quite blind. In fact, Jesus says here, if you were really blind, you wouldn't be guilty of sin. In other words, if you were completely blind, spiritually, theologically clueless, you would have an excuse for rejecting me. And you would have an excuse for rejecting this poor new convert that has found light through my ministry. But you're not that blind. He says the same thing, actually, a little later on in John 15 and verse 22. Listen to this. I'll just read it. Jesus says, if I had not come 
and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. In other words, if I hadn't come and spoken, they wouldn't have rejected me. That's what he means. But now, having come and spoken, they have no excuse for their sin. In verse 24, he says something similar. This is still in chapter 15. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. So so they did see and they did hear. The reality is that these fallacies, while in one way blind, are not really blind. And it's because they're not blind that their sin remains. That takes us back to our text. The last verse of the chapter, if you were blind, he said, you would have no sin. But now you say we see and therefore your sin remains. Your sin remains on you. Your sin lies on you. And therefore you are guilty, guilty because you see, and therefore you will be judged as a people who saw. Now, the great spiritual truth being taught here is that to some degree or another, we all see the glory of Christ. To some extent, we all see it, or to to turn that round, we all see it to some extent. John actually refers to this in his introduction to the gospel, which which we read together earlier on. In the very opening verses of John's gospel, uh, John says, and he's speaking of John the Baptist here, he says, he was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. Now, that light here is Christ. And he says that was the true light. Now, listen to this. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. These are astonishing words. That was the true light. Jesus Christ, in other words, who gives light to every man coming into the world. Now, when it says there that Christ gives light to every man coming into the world, he He doesn't just mean that the light of Christ shines to everyone. He's actually going further and saying that every man sees that light to some extent. And uh, I think perhaps if I just translated it a, a little bit differently, it would highlight that aspect of it, because really what the Greek is saying here is this. That was the true light which enlightens every man coming into the world. So the idea is not a light source pointing at each person that they can't see. The idea is a light source that is actually illuminating to some extent every single person in its beam. Now that's, as I said, an astonishing thought, an astonishing statement, an astonishing thought that the light of Jesus Christ in some way illuminates everybody. And that's really where we have to start in understanding these things. The reason it illuminates everybody is because the light of Christ shines in five places with different degrees of clarity. First of all, the glory of Christ shines upon us in creation. 
In uh, Psalm 19 there, we read that the glory of God is clearly seen in the heavens. Day by day and night by night, no speech or language where their teaching is not understood. So the communicative power of God's glory transcends human languages. It doesn't matter where people live or what language they speak, they understand the language of the sun and the moon and the stars and the world around them. That's the language of the glory of God, because the heavens declare, it's declarative, they declare the glory of God. Now, the the letter to the Romans makes plain that that is a revelation of the Son of God too. It is the glory of Christ. It was by him that all things were made. And as we read earlier, nothing was made that was made without him. Nothing made was made without him. So any man, woman or child, looking around them in the universe is seeing the glory of God. Now, you may say, well, that's not a very clear light. Well, that depends. But let's concede for a moment that maybe the light isn't as clear as you would like it. To some extent, still, the light shines there. The second source of light is in your conscience. The glory of Christ shines there too. Uh, Back to the letter To the Romans again, we're told in Romans 2 this time that the glory of Christ is seen in the law that is written on your heart. Now, Paul highlights this actually when he's telling the Christians in Rome that everyone is accountable to God, not just the Jews who received the law in its fullness, but the Gentiles too, he says, because the law of God is written on their hearts. Now, Jew and Gentile includes everybody in the world. That is the entire population of the world. And so the law of God is written on the heart of everyone. In other words, the basic moral laws that God has appointed, we know them as the Ten Commandments, are written in some form in everybody's heart. So, for example, when somebody's conscience tells them that they shouldn't kill or that they shouldn't murder, that We sometimes say that that's their conscience speaking to them. That is true in one way, but not true in another. It's not actually their conscience speaking, it's Christ speaking. That's the light of Christ shining in them. It's the voice of Christ to your conscience. You may wonder where you got the idea that you ought not to murder. And you may say, well, maybe it was passed on to me by people or maybe society has made me think that. Well, the word of God says no. That the fact that you yourself esteem that to be wrong is because the voice of Christ speaks that. The Bible makes plain that the uh, law of God is the word of God. All communications of God come through the Son. That's why he is called the word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. So that word that's inscripturated in your heart. You shall not kill. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall have no other gods before me. That is the glory of Christ shining in your soul. It is the voice of Christ to your conscience. 
So that's the second source of light. Lightening every man that comes into the world. The glory of Christ is in the creation around you and it's in your conscience within you. But there's a third source of the glory of Christ. And this one is confined in a way to a certain group of people. It's the glory of Christ that shone through his ministry. And of course, that light shone upon those who witnessed it. Now, I'm reluctant in a way to confine it to that for a reason that you'll probably understand, because we too are witnesses in scripture of the ministry of Christ. But I'll come to that. It's better to put that under another heading. Here I'm actually talking about the glory that shone as he spoke and as he performed his miracles. Now, we normally think that the glory of Christ was veiled in his ministry and veiled in his humiliation. So, of course, it was. Um, it wasn't externally visible. There wasn't a a luster around him. There wasn't a glory to be seen. You'll know, of course, that there's one exception to that. That was on the Mount of Transfiguration, when for a just for a moment, for the benefit of those who, who witnessed it, Peter, James and John, his glory was actually made visible. Instead of being veiled uh, by his humanity, it shone through his humanity. And uh, that's why John, uh, looking back on that incident years later, could say, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten, uh, full of grace and truth. In other words, it was the glory of his sonship, the, his glory as the son of God, his glory as the only begotten that shone through for a while. But of course, normally we would say it was veiled when he went about preaching and when he went about performing his wonderful works of ministry, of healing and um, making bread to multiply and turning water into wine, you would say his glory was veiled. But we would be wrong saying that. Take that very miracle I mentioned there when he turned water into wine. It was the very first miracle that he performed in Cana of Nazareth. Now we're told that when he did that, this beginning of signs, John says, the turning water into wine. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. Manifested his glory. In other words, the light might not have been external in the way you might have expected it, but it was a manifestation of light nonetheless. The glory of Christ shone every time he opened his word, when grace flowed from his lips, and it shone every time he performed his wonderful works. You could not possibly see these wonderful works and say that you are completely blind. There's a sense in which you are. There's a sense in which you're not. You have seen and you have heard. So the light of Christ's, Christ's glory shines in creation around you, in conscience within you, it also shone in his public ministry. And that takes me to the fourth light source, where the glory of Christ is manifested in scripture. 
because, as Christ says, they testify of me. So when you open the Bible, whoever you are, you open the Bible. I hope you have an open Bible in front of you just now. And I hope you'll keep the Bible open and I hope you will open it before you retire to bed. They testify of me. It is a shining light. When you open the covers, a light shines. Paul puts it very graphically. Paul tells us that when we read the scriptures, we see, he says, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. Now, isn't that a wonderful statement to make? Second Corinthians 3, towards the end of the chapter. When we read the scriptures, he says, when we look into them, we see as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. And, he says, we are changed. We are being changed as we read them into that glorious image. From glory to glory, he says. Now, that expression from glory to glory is not an easy expression to understand. How are, we being, how are we being changed into the image of Christ from glory to glory? Well, I think the best answer to that is that it means one degree of glory to another. As we look into that mirror of Scripture, we see the glory of the Lord. And as we read spiritually and prayerfully, we are changed into that glorious image from one degree of glory to another. Now that second part of the process, that transformational process, is only true, of course, of those who are reading by faith. They alone are being transformed into that glorious image. But that does not change the fact that when you read even an account like we read tonight, the light is shining in you. And in so far as you are reading of that, hearing of it, seeing it, the light is in you. So the light of Christ's glory shines in creation, shines in your conscience, shines or it shone upon those who witnessed his personal ministry and it shone in scripture. There's actually one more light source. I don't know if you could speculate as to what it is, but I think it's a valid one to consider independently from the rest because fifth we can say that the glory of Christ shines in the lives of his people and everyone who witnesses his people witness that light uh, as they are changed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another that's a that's a living thing that's a visible thing it's a manifested thing Paul tells the Corinthians when he writes to them that they are living epistles known and read by all. It was the custom in churches long ago. It should still be when a person moved from one church to another that they took letters of certification with them. We sometimes call them disjunction certificates. But long, long ago, there used to be letters where one church would commend a person to another church to say that they were Christians in good standing. Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, I, I don't need that when I come to you. Of course, he was their father in the gospel. It was it was through his preaching that they had been begotten. He says that. But as well as that, he says, I don't need it because you yourselves are living letters. You are a testimony to the fact that I took the gospel amongst you because your lives have been transformed. Whereas once you were darkness, now are ye light in the Lord. 
You are living letters, walking epistles, walking letters. And these letters are known, he says, and read by all men. Notice that the people who see the Christians there are not totally blind. The letters are known and read by all. There's a testimony in the mouth and in the life, in the mouth and in the life of every single Christian person that shines a light into the mind of an unbeliever. So then the light of Christ's glory shines and to some degree all of us see it. Now that's important. And before we go any further, I want to stress something, and that's that we are all accountable for what we do with the light that we have. Um, tonight and uh, next Lord's Day morning, uh, I hope to elaborate further on this. And in fact, I'd like to have done it all in one day, but that wasn't uh, the Lord's will. Maybe he wishes us to think for another few days about these things. But we are all accountable for what we do with the light that we have. Um, a scripture principle is this. Christ tells us that if much is given to us, much will be required of us in the day of judgment. Where much is given, much will be required. Now, you, you find that statement in, in Luke 12 and in verse 48. Uh, Christ there is warning about uh, unfaithful ministers, really. Who, um, who begin to abuse their position and who, who begin to abuse those under their trust too by, um, just by, by various things, making it, making it all about themselves rather than about the flock. And the Lord says that they will be beaten with many stripes, many stripes on the day of judgment. But he says, those who did not know will be beaten with few stripes or with less stripes. The Lord is there drawing a distinction between false teachers and those who are the victims of false teachers. The false teachers, he says, in other words, will receive greater judgment. The Lord uses that expression, greater judgment, elsewhere. It's one of these passages where we get an insight into the fact that while hell is hell for everyone, it is not the same hell for all. These these false teachers will be beaten with many stripes, but he says those who were under them and who were deceived by them will be beaten with less. In other words, they're accountable themselves still for the teachers that they choose over them. They're accountable for the fact that they still have a Bible themselves from which they should check the things that they have heard. And, and you are responsible for the teaching you subject yourself to. You're responsible for what you do with the Bible and so on. But the Lord makes that distinction. He says, beaten with many stripes and beaten with less stripes. And then he quotes these words for everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required. Now, if you think tonight, um, think of everyone in the world, including yourself, of course. Think of all of us on a kind of spectrum of privileges. In, in terms even of light itself, in terms of the amount of light that we enjoy, think think about everyone in the world on a kind of spectrum of privilege. Uh, where do you come in on that spectrum? Where do the Pharisees come in? Where do 
heathen people come in or people who have never heard the gospel, people who don't have a copy of the Bible. Well, I want to consider that for a while with you. Let's say at the one end of the spectrum, there are those who have never heard the gospel. Now, of course, you you may be one of these people who says, or, or you people may say this to you, uh, people who say, ah, oh, but, you know, Christianity can't be true because what about people who have never heard the gospel? Well, where are they on the light spectrum? Well, they are amongst the people who have the least. But you'll notice that they still have two sources of light, yes? They first of all have the manifestation of Christ's glory in the creation around them. And they also have a manifestation of Christ's glory in the law that is written within their hearts. Doesn't matter where you are born into this world, the law of God is written in your heart. And what God says is that you and I and all of them are accountable for the degree of light that we have. They are accountable for that light. Have they perfectly kept the law of God that was written in their hearts? Have they always told the truth? Have they never coveted? Have they never committed adultery even in their heart? Have they honoured their parents? Have they ever had no other gods before this one? Now, if they are condemned, they are not condemned for rejecting the gospel. They're condemned for being disobedient to the holy law of God that is written in their hearts. Now, that's an extremely important principle. And I'll develop it more fully next Sabbath morning, because this question of our responsibility to the light is an important thing. Because had they used even these two light sources, things would have been very different with them. You may say, well, how is that the case? Well, I'll have to leave that for now. But all I want to say at the moment is that they will be judged according to the light that they had. And those are the people who receive the least. Well, who's received the most light then? Well, I'm sure in some ways you might say these Pharisees did. And you can make a good case for that. They had scriptures, at least read in their hearing. They had the temple of God, which wasn't just a church in this world. As I've often described it before, it was actually a giant visual aid of the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work. A temple that spoke of the glory of God and a temple that was indwelt by the glory of God. They had that in their land. They were, of course, too a covenanted nation, <clears throat> a holy people, a nation set aside. And what's more, that light source that I mentioned earlier of the ministry of Christ, well, they had that. They were privileged to see him. They were privileged to hear him. How many of yourselves sometimes felt, well, what would it have been like to have heard him? What would it have been like to have been sitting on the mount and hearing the sermon as it came from his lips. After all, he is the light of the world. As long as I am with you, he says, I am the light of the world. And is that not what he's doing in, in, the, in the chapter here? He is acting like the light of the world. Many prophets and righteous men, he says, desired to see what you see and did not see it. 
and they desired to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Surely, you would say, because they have the light of the creation, they had light in their conscience, they had the light of Christ's ministry, they had the light of scripture, at least Old Testament, they had the light of converted people. Surely, you'd say, these are the most con- most privileged people possible. They are at the very other end of the light spectrum. No, no, they are not. That's you, my friend. That's you. If you're wondering who is at the other end of the spectrum, it's you. How? Well, think about it for a moment. The Pharisees rejected the light before the cross of Christ. You are rejecting the light as it shines after the cross of Christ. The Pharisees rejected the light before the tremendous events of the resurrection and the ascension. Many of them were changed by that. You are rejecting the light after the resurrection and ascension. The Pharisees rejected the light before the blaze of light and power that came with Pentecost. You are rejecting the light after it came with that light and power of Pentecost. They rejected the light before these 3,000 people had been converted in one day in Pentecost. Had that ever happened, by the way, in the ministry of Christ? No, no. Such a stupendous display of power and such a marvellous ray of light as came on the day of Pentecost. Well, these Pharisees here are rejecting prior to that. You are rejecting the light after that. You are rejecting 2,000 years of gospel power in the lives of the nations. 2,000 years of historical testimony to the truth of these things. And you're rejecting the light shining even in family members. Even in family members. Most of the Pharisees didn't tell that, but you have that. You have that. They were rejecting a word that wasn't so accessible. They had an Old Testament and it wasn't to hand. You've got churches on your doorstep. You've got Christians in your neighborhood. As I said, Christians in your family. You've got the word of God everywhere you look. You can hit a computer button and it's there. You've got, I don't know how many copies of it in your house. To you, God has given much light. So from you, much will be required. And therefore, how will you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? And what we really need to take heart from that is not just to to take to heart from that is it's not just the danger that we stand in, but the fact that we may be slipping into a worse and worse position. That those who see may be made blind. That those who see may be made blind. Is that you? Is it you? Well, to understand that, there are two other 
spiritual principles that we need to look at, and maybe you can think about them before next Sabbath. And they, they both have to do again with privilege. To him that hath shall be given. And from him that hath not, even that which he has will be taken away. Think about them. To him that hath shall be given, but from him that hath not, even that which he hath shall be taken away. Now that's for next time. But are you beginning to see or are you becoming more blind? Will you not think about that? If you are blind, I mean, the Pharisees asked here, let me close with this. They they asked, are we blind also? Now, I wish they had asked that question in sincerity. But it's asked with sarcasm. It's asked with vindictiveness. It's asked as though they are saying, are we blind also? How dare you insinuate that we are? How dare you put us on the level of this man who was born altogether in sins? How dare you call us blind? But blind in a way is what we are, because irrespective of the light that shines and irrespective of the light that see, we will never see properly and clearly until we come to the Son of God who gives us light. Are you seeing or are you being being made blind? We'll look at what that means in the lives of people, God willing, next Lord's Day.